And let's pray before we come to God's Word. Father, we, we pray that your Word might dwell in us and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Well, we're going to do something a little different uh, tonight. We're going, to, we're going to trace a theme throughout our text because uh, identity may be said to be the theme of, of Acts 22. It comes up again and again. And it's, we're going to trace it because our society is in the middle of a so-called identity crisis by their own admission, an identity crisis. Now, identity is a loaded term nowadays, right? Because it asks the question, what makes you, you? What makes you, you? Is it your gender? Is it, is it your sexual orientation? Is it your cultural background? Is it your job? Is it your marital status? Is it your social status? Is it your Facebook status? What makes you, you? And the prescription we're told is to find ourselves and then to be yourself and then to love yourself and then to be proud of yourself. But that hasn't proved terribly effective, right? Because many, nevertheless, find themselves disoriented. Perhaps there are some here who nevertheless feel disoriented. In a culture in the middle of an identity crisis, we need to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Our identity in Christ. Because as we've been following Acts, Acts has made it very clear that being a Christian is what is most fundamental and defining about you. And so the main theme, as I said, could be said to, uh, throughout Acts 22, um, uh, it could be said to be identity. And so we're going to trace this, this theme throughout, beginning with a case of mistaken identity. So last time, thanks for that intro, Ray, and thanks for your reading. Last time, Paul had arrived in Jerusalem, and despite his best efforts, an intense riot breaks out, and Paul finds himself in a very precarious situation. Fortunately, a Roman SWAT team comes in uh, and, and intervenes and took him to the barracks, but, but people followed him. Get rid of him, they shouted. Uh, but our passage this morning, we, we, we began by reading, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, Paul asks this question, I extin moi a pin ti prose. May I say something to you? Now, you may be a little surprised that I just spoke a little Greek, however clumsy it might have been. But they were surprised that Paul had spoken Greek at all because it, it suggests that Paul is not who they thought he was. The commander's confused. Hang on a second. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Imagine being mistaken for a terrorist. Okay, That's dangerous these days. It was dangerous back then too. Josephus, actually, the Jewish historian, records, gives, gives us the backdrop here of how a false prophet from Egypt, actually, just a few years earlier, had led a band of zealous Jews to the Mount of Olives and had prophesied that this army would, would take down Jerusalem. But instead, the Roman governor, whom we will meet in the coming chapters of Acts, sent his army and killed several hundred, captured a couple hundred more, while the rest fled, and, and their leader escaped too. And so you can appreciate that this Egyptian would not necessarily 
have been well received if he ever returned. Um, but the Romans clearly assumed that he had and the people were now taking their revenge out on him. It was a case of mistaken identity, at least on the part of the Romans. But Paul replies, look, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. And then he asks for the floor. And the commander, who's sort of still playing catch-up, he allows it. And, and Paul's very wise. Do you notice he speaks in Greek to the commander? But he now speaks in Aramaic to get their attention, to get, the, to get the, the, the crowd, the Jewish crowd, to get their attention. Because Aramaic was a sort of the mother tongue of the Jews around that time. It's sort of a branch of, of Hebrew. It was a common language. And, and it works. It works. A hush falls over the crowd. And so Paul now gives that speech that we just read, that it's both autobiographical and apologetic. That is, it is his testimony and it is also his defence because Paul wants to set the record straight. He wants to set the record straight. And to the crowd in Jerusalem, who, if you remember, their complaint was that Paul taught everybody everywhere against their people, the law and the temple. Paul maintains, look, I am very Jewish. Okay, that's how he begins his defence. And he begins by addressing the crowd as, as brothers and fathers and then he goes on to reveal that he's from Tarsus but actually he was brought up in Jerusalem and that he studied under this fellow called Gamaliel. We've already met Gamaliel in Acts. He was one of the most prominent Jewish teachers of his day. So Paul was very well trained and extremely zealous. He describes himself elsewhere as a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he even persecuted followers of this way, these so-called Christians, to the point of death. Now, if Paul had closed his speech at that point, if Paul had left it there, he would have received a standing ovation. But there's more to the story because on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Jesus in what has become known, the most well-known and consequential conversion in the history of Christianity. Because when Paul turned to Christ, Christ became the very centre of who Paul was as a person. His very identity was now in Christ. And, and Paul publicly demonstrates this through baptism. He's Jewish. Don't get him wrong. He's very Jewish but he has become a Christian Jew, Christian first, Jew second. His loyalty, his love and his life were now found in Christ. In a very real way, he had become a new person, a new man, which is why elsewhere he, he, he writes like this, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Belonging to Christ is now the most fundamental and defining truth about him. And so the man who was once on a search and destroy mission finds himself in a search and rescue mission. But the question is, to whom? To whom was he sent? And this is what the crowd simply could not stomach. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is... This is the nail in the coffin because Paul effectively announces that the goodness and the grace of God had, had come to the Gentiles partly because many Jews had rejected it. 
Paul is identified with Christ first and foremost and with his people, whether they be Jewish or Gentile. But Gentile, Gentile was, was the trigger word. Gentile was the trigger word. And so one author writes, this word made all their resentment blaze up with redoubled fury. They yelled and they gesticulated in a riot of abandoned rage. That's not a... It's, uh, it's actually what happened. <laughs> Paul was Jewish, all right, but he was a Christian Jew now. His identity was now found in Christ. That was the most fundamental and defining truth about him. But you may have noticed that as he was setting the record straight as to who he was, he actually reveals who Christ is to those who had ears to hear. I wonder if you pick this up. In verse 14, Ananias tells Paul that he had actually met God on the road to Damascus. The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. This is, this is earth-shattering stuff. This is groundbreaking stuff for Paul because in the Old Testament, God is the righteous one. And, and that phrase is also applied to the promised Messiah. And so in this moment, Paul declares before this, this mob what Ananias had declared to him years previously, namely that Jesus is God. Paul was not anti-Jew. He wasn't anti-law. He wasn't anti-temple. He's pro-Christ. And he retells his testimony at any chance he gets, again and again, because it leads to Christ and, and reveals who Christ is. Well, the Jewish mob uh, clearly didn't have ears to hear all of that. And certainly the Romans didn't understand it. The Romans were wondering what's going on because they couldn't understand Aramaic. Um, but the commander, eager to appease the crowd, ordered that Paul be taken in the barracks and flogged and interrogated to find out why, why were the people shouting him like they were? And, and when it came to interrogation, the Romans didn't bother with good cop, bad cop techniques. It's just bad cop. They were going to get the truth out of Paul. They were going to beat it out of him. But as they stretched him out to be flogged, Paul asks another timely question. I presume in Greek, but I'm going to say it in English. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And, and the answer, of course, is a resounding no. It was, it was another case of mistaken identity. And we learn next that not only was Paul a Roman citizen, he was born a citizen. He didn't, he didn't buy his citizenship. One of his ancestors had probably been gifted, to, uh, gifted it for some valuable service to Rome. But as a citizen, he had rights. Now, if you've tracked the story of Acts, you'll notice that this isn't the first time this has happened. Back in Philippi, this had, happened, this had happened again. But in Philippi, he actually didn't reveal his Roman citizenship until after he'd been beaten. And so he doesn't assert his rights back then, but he does here. And so I don't think he does so simply to avoid another beating. He's gotten used to them by now. Or as a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, but rather for the sake of the gospel. Right? Remember last week, that was his barometer. That was what he was all about. And in the coming chapters, we're going to see, we're going to see how all this unfolds for the sake of the gospel. 
well, you may have picked up on it, I, I think identity may be said to be one of the main themes of Acts 22. It comes up again and again. So I want to ask, how do you think Paul right, would have answered our question? What makes you, you? What makes you, you? Because when Paul met Christ, his identity became that of a Christ one, a, a, a Christian Christ became the very centre of who Paul was as a person. Which means that he can write in places, in, say, to the churches in Galatia. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither, nor, there is, uh, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or to the church in Colossae, there is no Gentile or Jew here, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Friends, what makes you, you? What makes you, you? Because we learn here that your identity is not determined by your gender or your cultural background, or your social status. Whatever our stories, when we came to Christ, something extraordinary happened. He became the very core of who we are. Extraordinary. He became the very core of who we are. So other things may not cease to be true of us, But all these truths about me are secondary. Our identity starts with Christ and his people. Everything else has to find its place around that. So that is, if you were a Christian, then you were a Christian before you were anything else. You are a Christian, and therefore you are a Christian employer. You are a Christian and therefore you are a Christian teacher or labourer. You are a Christian and therefore you are a Christian student. You are a Christian and therefore you are a Christian mum or a Christian grandmum. And so... A word to all our wonderful women here at TMPC, all of our mothers and our grandmothers on this Mother's Day. Today we honour you. We do. We genuinely honour you. We want to thank you for the sacrifices that you have made, for the sacrifices that you are making, but you need to hear this too. Mums and dads, your kids can very easily come to consume you and define you. And this goes for grandparents too, right? Because grandparents' lives are increasingly revolving around their grandkids. After all, I mean, our family is our future. Our family is our legacy and so we invest in them, right? And yet for this reason, family can so easily become an idol, something that displaces Christ at the very centre of who you are. 
be sure, right? Kids, grandkids, families are God's good gift to us. And when all is well, they can bring such joy. But they were never meant to be where we find our identity. If we do, then when, not, not if, but when crises come, we and they will experience something of an identity crisis. So particularly to mothers, in a day and age when, when parenthood and, and childhood are becoming more celebrated, this is a good thing, but are also becoming more competitive the gospel says that you are not primarily a good mother or a bad mother or not a mother. You are a beloved child of God. And in Christ, our identity is not built on our record or our performances, but on Christ's record and Christ's performances. To come to Christ means making him the very centre of who you are. Now, I want to acknowledge that this is a hard word. This is a hard word, particularly for our mothers. But God is not asking something of us that he himself has not done. God knows what it is like to put someone else before your child, because of course he gave up his own son for us. God himself did not hold back this most perfect relationship from us, but gave it for us. So how can we put even those most precious to us before him? For anyone to come to Christ means making him at the very centre of who you are as a person. Because as Christians, we perceive that there is something precious. There is something precious in Christ that is worth any loss, that is worth any cost. So I want to ask you, what displaces Christ at the centre of your identity? What displaces Christ at the centre of your identity? Because you are not your job. You are not your job. You are not your kids. You are not your marital status. You are not your dress size. You are not your past. You are in Christ. You are free. You are a child. You are a saint. You are a citizen of heaven. You know, it was Paul himself who coined that phrase. I presume. Citizen of heaven. Paul here, we've read in our passage, he acknowledges his Roman citizenship, doesn't he? He even appeals to it. But although Paul had obtained this Roman citizenship through his family's history, he came to have another kind of citizenship as well. Writing to the church in Philippi, he says that for Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. We can't buy it. 
and we're not born into it naturally, and yet we are supernaturally when we are born again, when we're adopted as sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. But as Paul says elsewhere, friends, you have died to yourself and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. A hard word, but, but a timely word, I think, for all of us. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you might do a work in us and reveal us, real to us, those things that displace Jesus at the very centre of who we are. And we thank you that when we turn to Christ, he became the very centre of who we are. So we don't have to keep up pretenses. We don't have to continue to strive and, and be burdened by the expectations of us placed upon us by this world but we can rest in our identity in you. Father, we thank you for all, all our mothers, all our motherly figures. Today we honour them. And we pray that you would do a work, continue to work in and through them for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.